And so in the New Testament, we see the land of Canaan with positive eschatological connotations where New Jerusalem and so on, connections between the lands and new creation. You cross the Jordan River to get to new creation and so on. And so I see the destruction of the Canaanites as kind of the negative side of that, the, the judgment of evildoers who are seeking to prevent new creation from happening. That's what's going on with the destruction of the Canaanites is removing those voices that want to stop new creation. Uh, mm. And so putting it in the, the broader picture of what God is doing in the world, connecting it with things like the flood and the Exodus, uh, God's plan of calling Israel, uh, calling the world through Israel that Chris Wright talked about so well, mission of God and others uh, putting it in that perspective, I think really helps mm. me with um, thinking about what God is doing in the story. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello everyone, yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. We are sponsored by Logos Bible Software. So we're going to be doing a season five apologetics episode on Old Testament issues genocide. And we have Charlie Trim on to help us with this conversation. We're having him on because... He recently wrote a book called The Destruction of the Canaanites, God, Genocide, and the Biblical Interpretation, and it's published by Erdman's. So here for you you guys on YouTube, here's what the book looks like. Go to our show notes, hit Erdman's link. You can get this book for yourself. Um, And then also on our show notes, if you find the link to Confessional and Reformed Churches, Church Finder. Go ahead and hit that so you can find a local church near you or someone you know to uh, find a reformed or confessional church near you. Uh, also, some information just how to communicate with us. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and of course, email. So, emails guiltgracepod at gmail.com. Instagram and Twitter is at guiltgracepod. And then, of course, YouTube's pretty simple. You just type in our podcast name, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude Podcast. And you could subscribe to our show. I actually just found out recently yesterday, you can hit a little button uh, on YouTube on the video and it shows the transcript of the video. So for our hearing impaired audience out there, you can actually read what we are saying in the episode. So it's really fantastic. We want to help out everyone with, with this stuff. So, um, also, some other information, just uh, contacting Peter if you're interested in uh, his church planning efforts. Um, and then also the bridge builder group that we have is people and organizations that financially give to us to help our show grow. And as we are growing, we need more stuff and bandwidth and help. So uh, if you're an individual, you can uh, find out different levels of how to pay uh, or, you know, give us some funds. And then uh, you heard me earlier in the, in the intro, 
that Lagos Bible Software is our main sponsor. So they are our main bridge builder out there. So thank you, Lagos Bible Software. And then halfway through this episode, you'll hear words from some of our other sponsors slash bridge builders. So we'll jump into this episode and let Peter further introduce Charlie Trim. Yeah, we have Dr. Charlie Trim, who's Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies uh, at my alma mater, Talbot School of Theology, which is the graduate wing of Bible University, but kind of runs the undergraduate wing as well. He's a co-author with Brittany Kim of Understanding Old Testament Theology and the author of Fighting for the King and the Gods, a survey of warfare in the ancient Near East, and Yahweh fights for them, the divine warrior and Exodus narratives. And I want to give you a big thank you first and foremost just like nick did of, of writing a small book instead of a big book that we can <laughs> digest a little bit easier so thanks for coming on dr trim glad to be here and uh happy that you're talking about the short book and not the 700 page book that i wrote <laughs> that's right yeah that's sometimes you got to be smart when you pick books that you need to read for shows it's like do i have time to read 700 pages or do i have the time to read 110 i was like you know what i think 110 works a little bit better for us yeah yes indeed yeah. yeah, cool. So maybe, yeah, first first question we'll ask is uh, kind of the same question we ask most of our guests, actually all of our guests, is can you tell uh, those who may not know you uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do? Yeah, I'm from the Seattle area, uh, which means I miss the rain uh, here in SoCal. It's, it's right, far you're too from where, yeah, well, not where Nick's from, but it's where Nick moved from. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I miss the green and the rain and everything. Uh, I, I get depressed here in the summer sometimes when I don't even see clouds for days on end. <laughs> need some rain. That's... Uh, and then uh spent five years in Chicago getting a PhD from Wheaton College. And then I've been here at Biola for 10 years now. Uh, my main research interest uh, is this topic, uh, violence in particular, ethics, mm-hmm. New Old Testament. Uh, so those are the kind of classes that I teach and tend to write on. Uh, my main writing project right now is a commentary on Exodus, uh, which mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of violence there as well. So that mm-hmm. overlaps. But I love the book of Exodus just on so many levels of what God has done for his people and how that's relevant for us today in, in so many ways. Uh, I'm also a director at organization I helped start called Every Voice, uh, hmm. a center for kingdom diversity and Christian theological education. And so we are just thinking about a variety of ways to be thinking about diversity in Christian theological education. The main contribution that we're going to have is a, a database of work by minority and global scholars. Hmm. Um, and for the Old Testament part is mostly up now. We're looking for funding for New Testament and theology in the future. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Before Nick starts his first question, because uh, I don't think we have a um, a really question on this, but what, what got you into this topic in the first place? I, I drifted into it. My dissertation at Wheaton originally was going to be about intertextuality uh, in numbers and Deuteronomy, okay. but that was too broad. And so we had to focus it. Uh, and so we focused it on the warfare texts in the two books. But the more I studied the text, the more interested I got in the warfare part and mm-hmm. their textuality just went by the wayside. Yeah. And so my dissertation is a little more interesting than yeah. intertextuality. So someday I need to make it back to intertextuality, but I haven't quite yet. Uh, so my dissertation was on God as a divine warrior in Exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, I wrote a kind of encyclopedia of violence in the ancient Near East with warfare in particular. And then as I started teaching on it, students, of course, started asking questions about the Canaanites. And so I started mm-hmm. writing on that. And so this book is largely for my students to give them an overview of all the different work on this topic. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because this topic specifically revolves around genocide, ethnic cleansing, and the Israelite conquests, those are some some terms we wanted to define for the audience on the front end, and then also the term harem that you uh, mentioned in the book. You got to use the, the back of your throat, harem. Harem, yep. <laughs> um, you provide, so uh, you do help provide a definition, though you get some of the definitions from somewhere else and you cite them in the book and explain them, of genocide. Um, can you describe that for our listeners? I think that's the most important term, but those other ones I mentioned too, ethnic cleansing, harem, hopefully I said that right. Yeah, you got I'm it. Not... You got the little phlegm. Harem. Yeah. The more, and, yeah, the uh... more spit that comes out of your mouth, the better. <laughs> yeah, if you're spitting and... on your microphone, you probably said it right. Yep. Right, right. Uh, why is this term used for the Israelite conquest, specifically in Joshua, and why are, why may it not be helpful for description for what occurs? Yeah, the term genocide uh, is a relatively recent term, uh, coined about 100 years ago or so. Uh, genocide scholars uh, debate about what exactly it means, uh, but it's generally agreed that genocide is not about numbers. It's not about how many people you kill, hmm. but it's about killing someone or removing their identity because of some kind of group identity. And so uh, the most famous one, of course, is the Holocaust, where Hitler's focusing on removing the Jewish people in a variety of ways. And so genocide focuses on group identity. Ethnic cleansing is similar, but instead of trying to remove it altogether, they're being pushed out to a separate place so that one place can be free of the other identity. And the two often overlap because generally people don't like being pushed out. And so there's a violence usually is connected to it but there's a slightly different emphasis uh, between those two things. Uh, when it comes to the Old Testament when, and the Canaanites, there's a variety of different commands related to the Canaanites. Uh, some sound more like ethnic cleansing of banish them, remove them from the land, mm -hmm. but there's other commands that sound a little bit more uh, closer to genocide, shall we say, of um, removing them permanently in some way. And harem might be one of those terms. Uh, harem means to dedicate to Yahweh in some way. And so in some cases, it could be dedicate to Yahweh by giving it to a priest. And then the priest can use, say, the field or the item, whatever the case might be. However, if there's an Israelite idolater, someone who worships someone besides Yahweh, then they're said to be haremed, which presumably means they're to be killed. And in several places, especially in Deuteronomy, the Canaanites are also commanded to be haremed. And part of the conversation is what exactly does that mean? Mm. Yeah, before Nick asks his next question, just, just so people kind of get their minds wrapped around this, because I've heard or read some stuff that people will like lop all these terms together and they'll like kind of insert them all into harem. And say like, well, harem means this when you in your book and you, you point out some different views that we'll talk about later. And I've read other stuff. John, John Walton talks about this a little bit. Uh, Meredith Klein talks about this a little bit. A few other guys talk about this too. Um, why, why may it, why may it not be helpful to kind of lop all these things into harem to say, oh, it's just for those who are outside of Israel? Because, like you said, it's also for those who are Israelite idolaters. Yeah, there's a strong stream in the Old Testament where it's not say Egypt or Canaan that's the enemy; it's sin that's the enemy, yeah. and God's going to judge that wherever He finds it. And so we have the wilderness wanderings, for example, where 
God judges the Israelites, uh, the end of Judges, where the Israelites become Canaanites in a sense. And the word harem is actually used in yep. application to the Israelites. Yeah, right at the so end. Sin. One. Yep. Yeah, right. uh, like really depressing Gibeah story. Yep. And so there's that sense of sin is the target, not necessarily some specific foreign country. And so harem is used uh, in that sense to judge sin uh, wherever God finds it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's why it's helpful not to say like, if it, it just means this, but like you said, there's, there's some context that has a much broader or more specific focus. That's not ethnic. It's, it's sin. It's he's yeah. exterminating sin. Yeah. I, I think in the ancient Near East as a whole, genocide isn't really a word that fits because like the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they don't care too much about group identity. Like they'll yeah. kill lots of people, but yeah. it's primarily because they're not giving them money. And as soon as you start giving Assyria money, then they'll stop killing you. Uh, and so it's <laughs> yeah. not like they have some vendetta uh, against a particular group or anything like that. Yeah. And so the closest you could possibly find it in ancient Near East is a book of Joshua and the Canaanites, because even though it's not ethnic ethnicity of the Canaanites, because Rahab's a good counterexample there and several others, yeah. Caleb, but religion is clearly an issue. And so all the Canaanite commands, even though they don't all use harem or anything consistent like that, they all talk about Canaanite religion being the problem. And so that's the focus of harem is the Canaanite religion. Gotcha. Mm. And the, the first part of your book is super helpful, explaining uh, the history and context of, you know, taking us to the place and time of, of all this and the ancient Near East. So you're you're taking us back there, talking about the context, and um, you know what was really helpful is you explaining how ancient Near East context describes warfare. You know what's going on when one group takes over another group, um, and the hy the hyperboles of a lot of kings. What what they would do? They would even exaggerate claims, like saying. You know, they would say, like, we wiped out everybody, but really all they did is maybe wipe out just barely that army they fought. I mean, those people are still around that, uh, you know, that army was representing that got beat or something like that. That's kind of like a loose, generic uh, explanation of what you're saying, ancient Near East uh, stuff. So based on that, um, could you kind of maybe uh, describe the the context, the history of the ancient Near East, what's going on to kind of lay the foundation of the rest of your book and who the Canaanites are, uh, where did they descend from, you know, biblically? Yeah, so the first three chapters of my book is this background. Uh, the first chapter in particular is the summary of my 700 page book. Uh, so <laughs> it's all about just a, a summary of warfare in the ancient Near East, how it works. The most relevant part, Nick, as you mentioned, is the hyperbole mm -hmm. where kings often talk about their victories very hyperbolically. So they never mention their defeats. They never even mention any casualties on their sides. Uh, and they always win uh, in yeah. dramatic ways. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. they, uh, however, they also don't make up battles uh, yeah. as far as we can tell. Like they're, they're at least honest in that sense. So they just uh, exaggerate, shall we say, their victories and then mm -hmm. just don't talk about their defeats. And so this is how you talk about warfare in the ancient Near East. And so when Joshua talks about warfare, then we should expect at least some influence from this genre. The, the background of the Canaanites in particular, uh, they occupy the land in as to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, west of the Jordan River. And 
according to the Old Testament, there's a person named Canaan with this bizarre story. He's the grandson of Noah, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a cursing of Canaan. Um, we, it's strange, and the more you dig into it, the stranger it gets. But something <laughs> yeah. bad happens yeah. involving Canaan, and so Canaan is cursed because of that. And then they live in this land. They're there when Abraham shows up uh, much later on. And we have references to the Canaanites uh, from outside the Old Testament. Uh, they start appearing in ancient Eastern literature about 1500 BC, and then they disappear about a thousand years later. Uh, and so it's a historically attested group uh, living in this place. And so that's a little bit of the background of who the Canaanites are. Hmm. Um, maybe to fill in that a little bit before we go into the next part. Um what what specifically in the old testament like do we find these commands to say like hey go take over this land go take over this people that seems to be most kind of in front of scholars like what do we do with this yeah it, it gradually intensifies throughout the torah so in genesis uh, we have lots of interactions between the patriarchs and the canaanites uh, some are positive some are negative some are very negative uh, there's the first reference to the iniquity of the Canaanites in Genesis 15, uh, that it's not yet complete. Um, but besides that, there's not very much in Genesis. In Exodus, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt and coming back, uh, we begin to get Canaanite commands, Exodus 23 in particular, uh, about removing the Canaanites, banishing the Canaanites. Uh, Leviticus talks about how the land is going to vomit the Canaanites out, which is some pretty graphic imagery. Uh, Numbers 33 uh, has similar terminology to Exodus, and then Deuteronomy introduces the harem language, yes. uh, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, <clears throat> yeah. uh, with removing Canaanite religion again. Yeah, and if you don't mind, because you pretty much answered uh, my next question, which is good. You know, you're, you're helping um, explain why you wrote this book and some ancient Near Eastern background. So I'm going to replace it with a small question too. Um, that that would be um, it. Sounds you're saying Canaanites were the descendant from the grand, grandson of Noah. I think I think they're from the line of Ham, right? Um, so yeah, there's like a curse that's upon them, and they they weren't the original inhabitants of that land, right? There was people before the Canaanites where they were, right? Uh, that part's a little unclear. So okay. it's possible. So one of the theories is. In a sense, this land always belonged to descendants of Seth, and the descendants of Canaan stole it. Um, but all of that isn't really fleshed out for us very well in the Old Testament. So we, we just don't know. It's it's, okay. it's possible, but we're not sure. And uh, I'll, add a, I'll add a quick question to, to next question, too, just to orient our listeners to the time of biblical history that this occurs. Um, like when, <clears throat> when, when is the, um, I guess, for lack of better terms, when's the most like intense form of this? Like, where, what part of biblical history are we talking about that they're trying to take over the land of the Canaanites? Yeah, in biblical terms, canonical terms, this is the book of Joshua. And so, after the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, uh, they enter the land of Canaan. And so, this is the, the primary point. There's one or two cases afterwards. First uh, Samuel 15, for example, with Saul and the Amalekites, uh, Haram is used again at that point. Uh, but it's primarily Joshua. The specific date is unclear depending on how you date the Exodus. Yeah. So either 1200, 1400 BC, somewhere around there. Gotcha. Yeah. So this is, uh, for lack of a better term, is after the law is given, 
whenever that occurs on Sinai and then they're in the book of numbers, they're looking down at the land at the end of Deuteronomy, they're kind of looking down the land and Moses is Moses dies at the top of the hill or, um, and then, so they go <clears throat> into the book of Joshua. So Joshua is the time this occurs after, after giving the laws they're they're trying to figure out how do we apply the law to this land mandate, to this, to this mandate to um, exterminate, but to set up like this, this holy, this holy ground, this holy land for, for the Lord. Yeah. And, Real quick before Peter goes, why you mentioned Rahab? Why is uh, Rahab important for this context? Yeah, she's the clearest example that ethnicity is not the problem. It doesn't matter who you descend from. Uh, what matters is your relationship with Yahweh, and so she helps the two scouts and protects them, and appears to have some kind of faith uh, in Yahweh, and so she is saved, becomes part of Israel. And so uh, that's the best example that the focus is not ethnicity, but religion. Okay, cool. Um, and to, to orient my next question, I'll, I'll provide some background and kind of a, a question before my question. Um, we're <laughs> adding a lot more small questions. This is a hard yeah. topic for a lot of people to kind of wrap their minds around. So I think it's helpful. But why <clears throat> why has kind of ethnic cleansing, genocide, why, why have those all been kind of maybe more so lately? kind of bunched up into this term of harem and um, maybe what's not the history of it necessarily, but why has this all kind of come into to this one thing? Why, why is it kind of assumed that this is what's happening in the Old Testament? There's a variety of reasons for that. Um, to some extent, the new atheist, Richard Dawkins and so on, popularized a lot of the arguments against the Bible by portraying the God of the Old Testament in particular as this pretty horrible guy. Uh, so, Maybe some of that, uh, I think it perhaps correlates with greater attention to uh, colonialism and culture as a whole. So thinking about the the negative effects of colonialism yeah. on, say, Africa and Asia and grappling with some of that, uh, it's hard to, to think about that and then not also think about what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, and just the, the rise of the nuns in general, of those leaving the faith. Not and, Catholic nuns, but <laughs> nuns. The N-O-N-E, no yeah. yeah. uh, those who have no religion. Uh, so this is often an issue with them as well. So previously in the past, that group might have been culturally Christian, uh, go to church on Christmas and Easter, not really thought about these kind of topics. But now they have more formally left the church and these topics are are more in the conversation so i think a variety of reasons okay. why it's more prominent now gotcha yeah because it's it's you, you don't trace this history necessarily and i'm sure others do but there there does seem seem to be kind of like a renewed interest and in like oh actually what's what what is going on in the conquest where before it, it doesn't seem like as as much i mean if you read valhausen or a couple of guys like they they talk about it a little bit but not as kind of pointed as they do today or kind of include some of this stuff into it um, so that gets into some of the, the questions on part two of your book. So what what are the different, because there is a couple different views on what's happening in the conquest and how to understand the Old Testament, what's happening, the words, um, is this actual history, is God actually bad, uh, what do we do, some of, some, some of this stuff. So what, <clears throat> what are some of the different views um, of what's happening in the conquest and the Old Testament in general, the Old Testament account, and and how do, and we don't want to say like, obviously some have more problems than others do so but then how do they help us maybe better read the text versus just saying like oh they're terrible which yes some of them are are not very good readers of the text but how do they help us better read the text of of this account 
I divide it into four different views. So the first one is kind of the new atheist approach where you look at God and you see God as being really violent. And your response to that is you just reject the package altogether, the entire religion package. Uh, And so Bible, God, religion, you just cut it all out because God is violent. Uh, So this is the one view in the book that I explicitly reject. Like as a Mm -hmm. Christian, I'm I'm not a fan of this, uh, but this is a pretty common view in our time. I know you've gotten a a little bit of flack that you didn't take a stance, but at least you do take a stance against something. Yes, this first view uh, I do reject. Yeah, exactly. uh, In the book. The second view disconnects God from violence. And so the scholars in this group want to keep their faith in God but they don't want to attribute this violence to God. And so in a variety of ways, they they find methods to disconnect God from violence. So like one simple one, like you're mentioning, is to say these are not historical events. Yeah. And so this ties in with some historical criticism that says, you know, the Battle of Jericho didn't happen and so on. And so um, that could be a way forward ethically as well to say, if this event didn't happen, then we don't need to worry about the ethics (laughs) of it yeah or you could say just intuitively we know genocide's wrong and so as our god-given uh human ability to see sin clearly we are expected to read the bible a certain way and so we should reject genocide even if the bible says it's from god so we should assume this is a mistake on the ancient israelites part or something like that and just use our moral intuition Hmm. to reject it it's almost like God didn't really command genocide, but the Israelites went ahead with it anyways. Exactly. And then the most sophisticated way forward in this category is to think about Jesus as a lens, mm-hmm. um, which that's obviously a New Testament theme. You want, you want to know who God is? You look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so Eric Seiber and others have said, well, Jesus is pretty pacifistic in the Gospels. He's not beating people up and so on. And so if Jesus is pacifistic, then that reveals God to us. And so we can then understand the Old Testament presentation of God as a nonviolent one. And so all the places where God is violent, we have to either chop those off or understand it in a different way or something like that. Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guiltgrace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. John Calvin said that faith is the axis around which everything in the Christian life rotates. And what a truth this is. 
And this year, Westminster Seminary California's annual conference will be focusing on faith specifically, exploring various facets of doctrine and life as they touch upon the centrality of our faith in this Christian life. And bringing these messages are Westminster's own and my former professors, including Dr. Michael Horton on the Anchor of Faith, Dr. W. Robert Godfrey on the Crisis of Faith, Dr. Craig Troxell on the Heart of Faith, Dr. Bradley Bittner on the Hope of Faith, and Westminster President Joel Kim on the Gift of Faith. This conference is a delight because it's a really unique opportunity to listen to these seasoned pastors and theologians share from God's Word to help us in our Christian pilgrimage. There are few conferences, if any, with so much theological power and such a small and intimate package. And in tandem with this annual conference is another seminary for a day where you can attend classes, meet professors and students, see the campus, and so much more. I myself did this in March of 2019, and I loved it. If you come, you're eligible to receive a $400 travel grant to cover your expenses. From faith to faith, the power of God for the Christian life is happening January 13th to 14th, and registration is open now. Go to www.wscal.edu slash conference for more information and to save your spots or go to our show notes for the same link and reserve your spots. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Hey guys, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Reformation Heritage Books. We've partnered with them and they've partnered with us to try to push a couple of their uh, published books. One of them is the 10 volume series of William Perkins, who a 16th and 17th century reformed writer, wrote commentaries on Galatians, Revelation, uh, wrote the Golden Chain of Salvation, some incredibly influential works in reformed theology. Also, the Family Worship Study Guide, which gives you quick little snippets, about a paragraph each of all 66 books of the Bible, each chapter in those books. So it's really good for family worship. And also they have basically every major publisher uh, in the world. They sell their books at cheaper than Amazon uh, sells them. So if you guys Go to heritagebooks.org, drop a line that Guilt, Grace, Gratitude sent you, and purchase their books. We'd be grateful, and you're supporting a great cause. Yeah, and RHB Books is the largest confessionally reformed publisher in the world, and they publish historical and modern works on a consistent basis. So you can find them on Twitter at RHB underscore books and on Instagram, Reformation Heritage Books. Yep. So go on over there, get these books. There's so much good stuff coming out and hopefully this is good. And then I think this one doesn't necessarily hit one, but you also talk about the potential that the genocide is not specifically just killing. It's just pushing from the land that comes from a different, a few different scholars. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about those who'd say, yeah, genocide is, is not, killing it's just removing does that does that make yeah, sense so this is this would be category three so these scholars basically say if you read the text correctly it's really not that violent it's not genocide it's not terrible violence and so they solve the ethical problem via biblical interpretation and so there's no special ethical defense needed you just read it correctly and so one way forward like you talked about peter is the banishing focus and there's several commands that use the word banish like a rush and a few others and so the the focus then is it's not genocide 
we're just removing them to a different place, uh, which, uh, and, and there's a few places in Joshua and Judges where that kind of language is used. So it does seem to be part of what happened. Uh, of course, part of this is it doesn't solve the ethical problem per se, because now we just have ethnic cleansing instead of genocide, which I, I think is is better ethically for most people, but it's still quite ethically problematic. So it might be part of a way forward, but not necessarily the sole solution. I see. Yeah, and real, real quick, something I find really interesting too. Um, generally speaking, we don't question if God is cruel or bad or anything like that when we come across the flood with Noah we don't really question uh, God being cruel when it comes to Exodus and the plagues in Egypt. But yet, this seems to be different. This seems to trigger a different chord with reaction to people. What, what's going on there? Yeah, the, the core difference, I think, is the actor. So in the flood in particular, with the plagues, although with both of them, there's more and more attention being given to the ethics of that as well, especially the 10th plague, you know, the firstborn yeah. of Egypt dying, that's attracting more and more attention. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is a, a discussion of the ethics of that various approaches to how we think about the 10th plague, what is God doing there. But the key difference between those on the one hand and the Canaanite conquest on the other hand is the actor because in the Canaanite conquest it's Israelite soldiers who are acting a certain way and we're expected to think that Israelite soldiers are off killing these innocent people and I think that is significantly more difficult to swallow as well as the connection with colonialism today where it just gets difficult to praise Israelites who are acting like the colonizers that we condemn in other contexts uh, so it just feels more similar to contemporary issues than say the flood does hmm. maybe if you can talk to as well and this, i've read this in other places as well as yours but it as far as people can tell they're not exterminating quote-unquote Canaanites because they're under the covenant mandate of israel because they're not under the same covenant they're not they're not under a covenant that israel is under so maybe and i've read this in a couple other places so um, yeah, well, like maybe if you can describe maybe the difference between Canaan and Israel, because some people may say, like, how are they how are they different? Like, what's what's going on to Canaan that's not actually happened in Israel or sometimes it happens in Israel, and not actually Canaan. So maybe if you can describe that that difference, too. Sure. Uh, just to, to frame it a little bit, we're we're now in the fourth category, yep. which is basically defending God uh, in his Canaanite commands. Like, why is this OK for this particular event? Uh, the one who's focused in particular on that is the Walton's book, yeah. uh, John Walton and his son, Harvey Walton. Uh, and they they argue strongly that uh, Canaan is not being judged for their sin uh, because they're under a different relationship with God and so on. To some extent, I think that's the case, but I, I think they take it too far. Yeah. I think there's still a sense where all humans are liable to judge. I, I have that same exact critique of the book. Uh, so that there's some helpful things. I, I like their definition of harem, in particular, the denouncing uh, rather than killing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm not as persuaded by saying just because they're not under a covenant with Yahweh like Israel is means they, in a sense, get a free pass. Um, so I, I think there's enough text uh, 
especially in the Pentateuch, that connect the Canaanites with wickedness. Now, on the other hand, I don't think it's Canaan is more wicked than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can make that argument. Yeah, I think it's tied to the land in particular, where this land is promised to Israel. Mm -hmm. And so that is why Canaan is the recipient of these commands and not, say, Babylon or Egypt or something like that. And so that is the the one time nature of this is that it's the focus on the land. Yeah. And if there is some connection in the past with the, the curse of Canaan, did they steal this land from Seth? Possibly like those are some interesting parallels, possibly. OK, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. So I think that helps orient this a little bit because it's we're not saying that Canaan is worse or they send more than Israel. So they're exterminated from the land because it's it's like I preach from judges and you've talked about judges. It's it's very clear at the end of judges that nobody else is being exterminated besides Israel. So it's it's not tied specifically to Canaan, um, but like you said, it, it seems to be tied to the land and whatever relationship is happening there. And I, I agree with you because I, I read the Walton book right after I read yours to figure out like well, what what did they actually say? And I I found myself agreeing with your your account on your fourth view because you're like yeah I think they take this covenant differentiation a little bit too far where they say it kind of like you, you can kind of make the argument based off their book. And obviously we don't have them as a conversation partner to, to talk to them and say, what do you actually believe? Um, but it does seem like they say Canaan's under nothing effectively. But it does seem pretty clear, like you said, from the Pentateuch, from kind of the, the moral covenant, this, this thing that's written on our hearts that um, no, they're, 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 they're subject to something. It's not the same written law that, that Israelites have, but they're subject to something. So there has to be something there. Um, yeah, so that's, that's helpful. So maybe to tie even clearer and be more concise, Canaan is not of the same people as Israel. They're not like the same people group, right? Correct. Although they do speak probably the same language. So yeah, there's some that, connections yeah. there. But yeah, they're a very different ethnicity background. Gotcha. Yes. And that's, that's helpful for those who have no Bible backgrounds. Like who the heck are the Canaanites? Who are the Israelites? Like what, why does this even matter? So it's, they're not the same. Yeah. They speak the same language probably, but not the same kind of background. Um, and then you talk about this difference too, or possible difference. Maybe there's no difference. Is, is there a difference between genocide and ethnic cleansing? Like should, should we kind of put a, like a fine tuned fork between that, a uh, fine tuned brush between that and is, is that, and I know you, you don't take a specific view in the book necessarily, although you can kind of tell based off your writing, like what you're closer to than what you're not closer to. Um, but you don't have to take a stance here necessarily. Um, but is that, is that, is that what's happening in Joshua? Are they, are they doing it because they're, they're foreigners, they're, they're, they don't like this color of their skin. They, they think they're bad people. Is, is that what's happening in Joshua? Well, since the book's published, I don't mind telling you what I actually think. Oh, there so, we go. Uh, I, re I reject the the second view as well um, because of the issues related to the Bible. Uh, everyone in the second category almost uh, rejects inerrancy, has a, hmm. a a lower view of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, than I would like. And even beyond that, I don't find the arguments persuasive to reject Yeah the connection between God and violence. Uh, I think you basically have to take a universalistic God and reject eschatological violence as well, mm -hmm. if you're going to go that direction. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of, which just means like end time, everybody who doesn't believe is, is going to be consigned to hell. Those who do believe will be in heaven. Correct. Correct. So I don't find that view persuasive, um, but I, I didn't 
say my view about it in the book because I wanted to to leave that open because I do mm -hmm. think it's it's a much better option than category one. Uh, and so mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to yeah. expand the horizon of the possible readership of the book uh, by saying like that one is still a, a, an open possibility. Category three, I think, is helpful. Like hyperbole is clearly there. There's mm -hmm. clear examples in Joshua. Joshua 10, 20 is probably the clearest example. It says they slaughtered them all and the remnant went back to their cities. So like, clearly, <laughs> yeah, like which there's something it? going on here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think hyperbole definitely helps, uh, especially when it comes to like the heart of the problem that we think of with killing of the innocents. Like I think the majority of it was probably military battles. But I don't think it solves the problem ethically. Like, I don't think you can just say, yeah, it's only ethnic cleansing. We're all good, right? Like that, I don't think is something that solves the problem for me finally. So I think it's a helpful part, but I think the category four arguments defending God's actions in some way are needed as well. And so the 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 banishing to a separate country, uh, that is certainly something that's there, but I don't think it solves the problem by itself. Yeah, I think even though you don't explicitly say in the book, a perceptive reader, I think, catches this. You critique view four less than you do the, the yeah. first three. Um, so I know you I know because I read some reviews on the book and I know you got some flack for like, oh, he doesn't take a view. So he's just kind of leaving this and runs and just lets us to figure this stuff out. But if, if you read closely, you can see what Dr. Trim is, is talking about. And I think it's it's really helpful because you, you definitely do see this in Joshua. You see this in Judges uh, where they're not always killing it's just and, and if they don't if they don't do this what i find interesting too fascinating if you want to maybe talk about this if israel doesn't do this it actually happens to them is, is that right yeah and like we've been talking about the end of judges also the entire exile is kind of in a sense a harem as well of renewing the land from generations of sin uh, and so there's several spots along the way in israelite history in the old testament where the, the their sin is judged in a similar way to Canaanite sin being judged. Yeah. Um, and maybe, I don't know, Nick, Nick, if you're thinking about this too, but maybe to assume you're killing innocent people, you, you lose a doctrine of sin. You lose a doctrine of we're, we're born in sin. So it's not like killing one innocent group versus another, but it, it could be, they would say like, well, they don't have a covenant on them. So they don't have the same kind of stipulations or mandates that Israel does. Is that also maybe getting to some of the stuff where there's maybe a kind of a kind of a wonky view of sin and like who's actually innocent in in this case? Yeah, we could think about that. Uh, this is where something like the flood complicates things. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's hard to have a hyperbolic reading of the flood and say, yeah, it's only those who truly sinned and all the innocent no or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's a variety, like the picture as a whole, the Old Testament, I think this is where it's important to think about that and put this in the context of what God is doing in calling Israel and everything. Uh, so we haven't talked about this yet, but the view in, in view four that I find most persuasive and helpful is the eschatological perspective hmm. of thinking the, about the, the Clinian, Clinian perspective. Yeah, he's the one who, who talks about it. Intrusion initially. ethics and all that stuff. Yeah, where the... We all face judgment in the end times, but with the Canaanite conquest, the eschatological judgment is brought into history. Like in a sense, it it comes early for them. So it's not unfair in that sense. They're not facing something that no one else does, 
but this judgment is brought into history. And so in the New Testament, we see the land of Canaan with positive eschatological connotations where New Jerusalem and so on, connections between the land and new creation. You cross the Jordan River to get to new creation and so on. And so I see the destruction of the Canaanites as kind of the negative side of that, the, the judgment of evildoers who are seeking to prevent new creation from happening. That's what's going on with the destruction of the Canaanites is removing those voices that want to stop new creation. Uh, and so putting it in the, the broader picture of what God is doing in the world, connecting it with things like the flood and the exodus, uh, God's plan of calling Israel, uh, calling the world through Israel that Chris Wright talked about so well, mission of God and others, uh, putting it in that perspective, I think really helps me with um, thinking about what God is doing in the story. You made my uh, West Cal heart very, very glad. Because we're, we're we're clinic or climbing into the core, so it's you, you made my make my heart sing. Real quick, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up um, because I was starting to think, talking about covenant, the Canaanites aren't under covenant, but they are under the Noahic covenant of the common grace, the entire world, and so what that means is it's you know delaying final judgment for the world, hmm. but yet we see God ordained. Um, you know, almost kind of like a, a early, dare I say, early judgment, you know, within the Noah covenant in the Old Testament. So I think the way you could maybe sh clean up what I said, so I don't confuse anybody, <laughs> but, um, um, but that's kind of helpful where if you understand the context of this is post flood, so this is under the Noah covenant, and then there's the destruction of the Canaanites, and then you're thinking, well, like, why is that happening under the Noahic covenant? Okay, I'm pointing towards some sort of maybe typological eschatology that's going on. And what typologically just means it's pointing forward to final judgment. Yeah, one of the things I do in my classes on this topic is look at all of the divine violence in the Old Testament that God does. There's only like maybe 10 cases or so. Uh, the flood is the most prominent one at the beginning. Yeah. But the second one is Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that kind of heightens that question, Nick, you were just talking about of, wait, pr God promised he wouldn't flood the world. Like, what's he doing with Sodom and Gomorrah? But I think the answer is he still cares about sin just because he's promised not to judge the world through the flood yeah. doesn't mean it's a free pass to whatever you want. Uh, and so some of the the later cases of divine violence are emphasizing that as well as 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 well as doing other things like the Exodus is a clear case of rescuing those who are suffering oppression, uh, as well as the connection between God and his people. Um, and so each case of divine violence, I think God is doing it specifically, making a statement in some way. And so this plays into that um, that trend in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's helpful. Maybe to <laughs> to clear up the language for those who are like eschatological judgment. What in the, or, that's well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's bringing future stuff right now. So it's saying yes, this is coming in the end, but I'm gonna give you a little bit of preview what this judgment is gonna look like. Is that is that right? Yeah. Cool. Just just so just so people have some bearings around like they're like eschatological judgment. That's a big word. I was not expecting to to hear in this episode. So that's 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 good. So. Last question, unless you have anything that you want to know, or, or Nick has another question. So <clears throat> we've talked about those who struggle with this. It's obvious that people have struggled with this portion of biblical history. And it's not like we don't. It's just we maybe maybe we struggle with a little bit less, although we still kind of have the same questions. Uh, and those who might see this as 
possibly the most barbaric part of the old testament they're like and this is why they look at the old testament like that god's different than the new testament god because he kills and he punishes and it like i said it sure seems that jesus is pacifistic and um i don't know if i can take this thing so they they lop off this and so they can't take the whole so they we need to move on from this so how much you how much you approach this portion of biblical history <clears throat> in light of the whole to both those who have a who who believe who like yes i know the bible is inerrant I, it's the word of god but this is still a really hard portion of the bible and those who look at this portion of the bible is like yep nope I'm, I'm not down with this um i can't believe this i can't believe god would kill people these innocent people so how, how much you talk to both of these kind of with these views in mind and now that you've written a book and you've researched this a little bit more yeah maybe three thoughts in closing one is i still struggle with this i'm I'm, I suppose the one of the experts on this since I've uh, written a book on it, but I, I still struggle with it. I, I still have difficulties with it. And that's kind of why I didn't say more about my view, partly at a, a practical level. The point of my book is not to defend what I'm saying, but to help people navigate what everyone else is saying, because there's all these different voices and they're all saying different things and so on. But also just to emphasize how I don't necessarily have it all answered. And the book is more an invitation to join the struggle rather than let me tell you what the answer is so you can end the struggle. Like let's let's walk through the struggle together of trying to think through what's happening. Uh, secondly, something that's been really impactful for me in my life and something we don't talk about very much in the church today is lament, mm. where we come to God and we say hard things to God. Mm -hmm. And the Psalms give us a basis for this. Uh, usually it's things going on in our life where we bring it to God and say, like, I'm really struggling with this. Why? Where are you, God? Like, why have you abandoned me? And so on. But I think there might be some ground for biblical text as well, coming to God and saying, why did you write it this way? Like, why did you act this way? And the beauty of the laments is it gives us a place to talk about these things to God, to be honest with our feelings, because, of course, God knows it already. Like, mm. we can't hide that from God. But the laments give us a form that brings us to a place of trust. And so we can lament these biblical texts that we might struggle with. And through the laments, they they help us come to a place where we can trust God. Uh, and so uh, even though the laments don't necessarily show us the correct answer or life doesn't necessarily get better, but it brings us to a, a place of, of trusting God. So I think that's important as well. And then the, the third is a, a reminder of what what's the bar to follow God in a sense? And the parallel I use here is the New Testament story where Jesus commands the crowd, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a whole bunch of people leave because that's really disgusting. And <laughs> he looks at his disciples and says, are you guys going to leave too? And the subtext, I feel like the disciples are saying, I, I kind of want to, like, I don't know what the world is talking about. But Peter says, you have the words of life. And I think that is such a profound statement of, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, but where else am I going to go? Like you have the words of life. I'm going to trust that these are part of those words of life, even though I don't understand it. And so I think that's a, a helpful pattern for us as we look at these texts in the Old Testament and other difficult areas of apologetics to say, I don't necessarily have an answer, God, but I know you have the words of life and I'm going to keep on following you, even though I don't necessarily have it all worked out for myself. Hmm. I remember reading that part in your book and, and it really helping because I was thinking, you know what? God knows the full picture of everything, past, present, future, everything. He knows exactly what our destiny and, and what's happening right after we die. He, he understands everything. He lives outside of time. We don't, you know, we, we don't know. 
And so we don't know if the destruction of the Canaanites didn't happen, how that changes things. So it had to happen for redemptive history. And there has to be a level of like, it seems really weird right now, but we'll know the answer when we're in heaven and on the last day and all that. But God knows. We have to know that he is He is truth and he is everything and he is the creator of everything. So we have to know that as weird as it is, we know that that was the only way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, we, we can, we can look for answers and like, like your book, we can search for answers, we can research and we can get as close to it. And this is, this is not a call to say like, well, the answer's not out there. So might as well not try for it. And this is kind of an open faith that you can believe whatever you, whatever you want to believe. Um, this is, we can search for answers. We may not find the fullest answer that fully, um, we can fully comprehend it. It makes us feel fully good about this stuff. But we can get close and we can say like, you know, I think this is what the biblical text is saying, but this is also not hinging my salvation. This is not also hinging um, anything like that's first order. It's as, as long as I believe that um, God inspired this through his spirit, that this is this is the text that we have, then we have to deal with this. And um, I know God is good. I'm not really sure what he's doing in some of these texts, but I know God is good. And so he's he's got to have some reason for doing this stuff. Um, and that's... It's it's maybe not a satisfying answer for some people, um, but it is, I think, maybe like you said, and it's kind of the ultimate answer. It's we don't know. We have a good idea, but uh, that doesn't give us license to just like kind of skirt this topic and not talk about it, which, like you said, tends not to be talked about in churches, tends not to be talked about between Chris. They're not like the first question when you <laughs> go to lunch with your friend is like, what do you think about the Canaanite story? <laughs> talk about like hey what do you think about predestination or like some you fun haven't had lunch with about me. The story. <laughs> yeah unless you talk to nick then yeah nick <laughs> nick wants to talk about canaanite destruction um but yeah that's i think it's <clears throat> it's a helpful call out for us and um helpful to kind of orient ourselves around this um yeah this is and i think we've we've got more into this a little bit more lately on yeah let's let's ask the hard questions because if we don't ask the hard questions out like you said um, they're going to come up later and it's, are we asking them now to kind of build ourselves up or are we going to deal with an article that we read in New York times or with some believer who may have a better understanding and they kind of make us fall flat on our feet. Like, I don't know. I have no idea what I think about this. Um, or we think like, I can only bring God my good thoughts. I can only bring God the things that I, I think are, are, are happy versus like, no, I can actually go to God with my, with my Christ. And just for the record, it sounds like, you're you're more on category four with a little sprinkle of hyperbole in there (laughs) sprinkle of hyperbole yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. is that right (laughs) awesome well dr trim thank you so much for coming on talking about this this is it's if if it's not the thorniest topic in the old testament it's one of the thorniest topics in the old testament thanks for putting the research into it for writing this book for writing a short book uh, not a long book. Uh, that, that'll be helpful. So those who are looking for some bearings, I would very much encourage people to, to pick up this book and um, read through it. It's a short read. <laughs> like Nick said, it's easy to get through. Um, so yeah, thanks for uh, coming on. Thanks for talking about this. Uh, looking forward to the, to the work that you have coming up in the future. Thanks for the conversation. That was fun. Thank you.
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.